America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. Try to put that out there, you know, that there's no excuse. You know, we all have our own struggles, but we can all overcome. Episode 25, Matthew's American Story. I spoke to Matt on what I believe was a beautiful spring day in Kentucky. Matt had this conversation with me outside. His home was going through some remodeling, and in the background, you may hear sounds of construction. In fact, I'm fairly certain you will hear sounds of construction, and maybe a dog bark or two. I thought about taking these noises out, but house remodeling is all about moving forward, and that's what Matt's story is about, moving forward. Here's Matt. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story podcast. My guest today is Matt Bradford. He has an amazing story to share, and I don't want to prolong that. Let's turn it over to Matt. Matt, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm looking forward to catching up the next hour. Me too. Let's start at the beginning. Maybe a little bit about you growing up and... What prompted you to join the military? So it's interesting because somebody asked me if the military was always you know, something that that was just set up for me because grandparents, father, uncles, they all joined the military. And, you know, growing up as a teenager, it was not my goal. I was born in Petersburg, Virginia. My parents got divorced at an early age, and my mom moved back here to Kentucky where, I mean, all of my family is, and even my dad's from Kentucky. So this was home for the first uh, probably 15 years of my life. And I love Kentucky and, and still, and I live here today. And, and um, but you know, just a kid, like every day it was something new. I want to do this, I want to do this, you know? And um, when, when September 11, 2001 happened, you know, I saw the, the terrorist attacks and I witnessed it on the news and the streets that were typically busy with kids playing sports was empty. And, and I got in my mind then that maybe maybe the military is the, the route I'm going to choose. And, um, you know, 2002, I decided to move to Virginia to live with my dad because I was struggling in school. Matt, how old were you when uh, September 11th happened? Just turned 15 years old. Okay. okay. And, um, but, you know, you know, my, my dad come in, you know, who typically I only saw summer, spring break holidays, but I, you know, my, my mom was struggling. My, you know, just the influences I had in Kentucky weren't what I needed as a high school student wasn't going to help get me where I needed to go. And, and I believe that if I stayed in Kentucky, then, then I wouldn't have chose the military. And unfortunately here in Kentucky, drugs are really bad right now. So really, so I moved to live with my dad in Virginia in 2002 and he worked at Fort Lee as the defense commissary. And so every time I go to the mall, you'd always see soldiers from the army and, you know, and, and I had a couple of friends who joined the Marines the same year that I did and one before me. And so it was just like, from then on, like the military was on my mind and, and I realized that, okay, all I have to do is give them my diploma that like, <laughs> this is the route that I want to choose. I wasn't, I was a, I was your typical teenager. I played sports in, in school and the, I love the social part of high school, not the educational part. 
so I, I, you know, August was my birthday and I turned 18 my senior year before my senior year started. And I went and signed into the delayed entry program December of my senior year. So all they gave me was my, my, my date to boot camp, recruit training. And again, all I had to do was give them my diploma. But, I, you know, I just, you know, living with my dad and living in the Dinwiddie community, I, I absolutely loved it. You know, they, as far as I was born, you know, I went back there and lived there for three years, but they welcomed me in with open arms and, and I'm just so grateful for everybody there. And especially for my dad to kind of pull me out of like a situation that could have like led me down a different road and put me in good hands. What service did you join them? So it's, it's funny when people, um, they asked me that. I was like, oh, you know, because the Marine Corps is not, I didn't have any ties to the Marine Corps. I was the only Marine in my family serving the Marines. Okay, you were a Marine. All right. Yeah, you know, and 2001, Black Hawk Down come out, and that was my favorite movie, and still is today. I wanted to be a Ranger, and then my dad was in the Air Force, and he was like, well, won't you meet with the Air Force recruiter? And I did, and I was looking at their special officer because I realized if I joined the military, I want to go overseas. I don't want to wait around. And uh, their special operations would almost a year and a half before they even get to your unit. Mm -hmm. And I met the Marine recruiter because like I mentioned earlier, I had a couple of friends go into the Marines and we started hanging out and I was basically, you know, I played basketball with the recruiter and he took me to Hooters and he sold me on the deal. So I was, uh, <laughs> and that, that's, that's basically how I've become, you know, got in, involved with the Marines. How did you find basic training? Where did you do basic training? So September, September 6th of 2005, I, you know, I got on a bus. I had a buddy, I went on a buddy program. So one of my friends I graduated high school with, we went to Paris Island, South Carolina. I mean, the first few days to weeks, I mean, you don't know what to expect. You're getting screamed at and yelled at and going in a hundred different miles in different directions. And, but, but from, from day one, you know, when you step on those yellow footprints, they, they tell you to remove the, the I and me and it's we and us here. It's a team. It's those around you. That's going to help you get through anything in life. And it's funny looking back on life, uh, how much you rely on those around you. You get good people, like-minded individuals in your life, then, then you could excel. But there's a lot of people, you know, that, that don't have the same outlook that you do. And, and all they are is just there to attach themselves. And when, when you need them the most, they're not there. So it's, a, you know, getting learning that teamwork aspect at an early time in my Marine Corps career really helped out a lot. Did you enjoy being in the Marines? Loved every minute of it, you know, and that's a, you know, for an 18 year old, that was the best decision I've ever made in my life. You know, not only to serve this country, but to serve as a Marine. And then when we get a little bit more into my story to understand that the Marine Corps has always been there for me then and there still today. What were your experiences? Can you go through some of those leading up to your traumatic injuries? So I basically went through, you know, recruit training, graduated in December, we moved on to School of Infantry in, in Camp Geiger, North Carolina. And, and it's interesting because like when I, right before we all left recruit training, our senior drill instructor was, oh, you know, I got one more cycle of recruits after you all and I'm never going to see you again. I'm going off to Hawaii because typically in the Marine Corps, if you're an East Coast Marine, you're going to be stationed in Camp Lejeune. So that's, that's kind of what was in our mindset. We were like, mm -hmm. oh, we're, we're East Coast, we're staying here. And so halfway through or closer to the end of school of infantry, we start getting word that, okay, there's a unit in Hawaii that's opening it up. And of course they gave you these little wish lists, kind of a quota check in the box. And I put Okinawa, Camp Pendleton and Camp Lejeune as my three choices because I didn't want to be stationed on the East coast. And, and uh, they basically stuck me right in the middle at Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii, but. 
Oh, how no. is that? Nice. I always tell people you look at you look at the money that costs to fly to Hawaii and stay in a hotel room and yeah I got a free trip by the government to stay there you know it's a the barracks room wasn't as nice as some of these hotel rooms in Waikiki but it'll do so you know it was not only me but it was pretty much everybody that went through infantry school on the um, 0311 side and the next company that was after us so a lot of those friends that I stood on those yellow footprints with we were all going to Hawaii together and uh, we checked into the unit and the, the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Marines just got back from uh, Afghanistan. You know, at that time, the rotational about going, being deployed was so quick. Every seven months, you're going overseas. And so they started right into a workup, did our workup, got involved. And then they, they pretty much told us from, from day one, we got there. It's like, make sure you stay ready. Make sure you stay trained because any minute we can get a call that we're heading out tomorrow. But uh, on September, basically September 11th, when I arrived in Kuwait, it was something else. This is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to wait around. And, you know, exactly a year after I joined the Marines, here I am studying, you know, in the sands of Kuwait, getting ready to be shipped into Iraq. And um, What year know, is this then? Is this 2006, seven? Yep, 2006. 2006, okay. And then, you know, around that time, it was uh, Fallujah was over, Ramadi was over. So, like, you know, and the surge of troops was being put into Iraq and we're slowly pushing them out of Iraq and and we were located in Haditha Triad up near the Syrian border you know next to I think it's the largest dam in the country it was Al-Qaeda's last stronghold to have some kind of like stability in the area and know? can I ask you're this young kid from Kentucky was it hard to I mean it's so different it's a totally different world there were you able to acclimate to that or was it kind of so foreign? I was. And I think because like I, I had my family back home, but I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. Like I knew like this is what I wanted to do. Like I knew the risk and everything that could happen to me. But but my mindset, my commitment was 100 percent because wow. I knew, you know, I'm either going to go over here and come home with my brothers or I'm not going to come home at all. Like I That's was willing admirable. to give it all for this country to make sure another 9-11 doesn't happen. It kept me clear. And um, I think once we got into town, because our, our FOB, our, our, our base, was in the middle of town and we had a satellite phone or two, we were away from everything going on. It was basically just us. We were living in Iraqi homes. The unit that we were, were, were leaving told us, you know, they, they ended up losing 14 Marines in that, their deployment. Wow. And, and they felt bad for the stuff that we're getting involved with. And I mean, I think it's for the first 40 days on average, our company, Echo Company had one casualty. So, I mean, we got, we hit the ground running. How many men make up a company? There's about 200 of us okay. in a company. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then kind of the way we were spread out, like Echo Company, which was my company was in Haditha, which was the main element. It was more the larger of the cities. It was the Haditha Triad. So we had a company to the south of us in Halkania and then a company across the river, Euphrates River in Barwana. All the operations that we did was on company level. A couple of platoons rotating in and out on patrols, one platoon manning the FOB on post duty. And then the last one was basically working with the Iraqis and uh, mobile unit. How long was your deployment? So I got, I got there in September and I got injured January 18, 2007. About about four and a half months. Can um, I tell you, Matt, it's 
so surreal to me that you are talking about 2007 in Iraq. It makes me emotional because you are the fourth person that I have spoken with who their traumatic injuries happened in Iraq in 2007. The fourth person. I've only been doing this podcast since the fall and I have talked to maybe, geez, seven or eight military people. And the four of you that were traumatically injured was in Iraq 2007. There was a lot of us coming home then. And I know like out of our battalion, we ended up having 23 Marines killed. And I believe 177 received the Purple Heart. I cannot, um, I mean, you are, how, how old are you when this happens? I, I was 20 years old. Oh my goodness. And you'd been there only four months. Before it happened, were you nervous? Were you scared on a daily basis? Or was it just, that's the way it is here, and you went about your duties? Was there a fear in you? There wasn't. It was just, like you said, it was just, that's what happens, you know, the daily duties. I just said there think about, you know, over the years and all the close calls and going on patrol when you get engaged. And, like, I was on the point, so I was in the front. And you just hear rounds just flying over your head, or you're just – never understand like until you're actually in a firefight like it does like slow down a lot but you go back to everything you learned in training and like when the enemy opens up on you okay this is what i need to do i need to find cover i need to you know get behind this i need to check on the guys around me and it's just like you're looking out for them but it, it does slow down a lot and i none of that crossed my mind getting hurt it's funny a lot of the guys that i was with we would always joke like, man, just let me get like shot in the arm or something, you know, so I can go back to Al-Assad and just like have a couple days off, <laughs> you know, it's like, let me go get some ice cream because <laughs> I mean, we were constantly on the go and yeah, I mean, there, I can't tell you how many patrol, I mean, we would probably two or three patrols each day, you know, and it was just three or four hours out. We'd come back, we'd clean our weapons. We might get like an hour of sleep and then we eat chow and then we're back at it again. And it was just, you get so used to it after a while. And, and a lot of times it's, you get, you know, there's certain streets that you'd walk down, you automatically just put your weapon on fire because every time you go down this certain street, you're going to get in, an enemy that's going to engage you. But, you know, you just, you enjoy the moment, like, you know what? And we were getting, taking so many casualties at one time. It's like when you left the FOB, you didn't know who's going to come home with you. And then by the time we got back to our FOB where we were staying in Iraqi homes, we we're your typical 19, 20 year olds. Like we were joking around with each other. We were kids. We'd play our PSP, which was big back in the day. And <laughs> but you know, when the gear when the gear went on and you got briefed, it was time to go to work. Were you able to interact with the Iraqi people and did they appreciate you being there? They did. They appreciate us a lot. Haditha at that time were like Al Qaeda had strong control over it. So, you know, and, and a lot of those people who if they were interacting with us, then Al Qaeda would go kill them. Yeah. And what they realized that we're there to help them out. You know, we, the whole um, hearts and minds and shaking hands and just letting them know that we're here for them so they can live safely in their own communities. We're not here to like take down everybody. We're here to remove the bad guys and put the good people in charge. So you can live your life without the fear of somebody breaking in your house and, and murdering your husband or kids. Wow. 
we got to, you know, go on a few patrols with the Iraqi police and army, but it was just uh, letting them know that we're there for them. Can you take us back to the day that your traumatic injuries, when that occurred and share what you're comfortable with? If there are things that you don't want to share, then I totally get that. Just whatever you want to talk about. I always tell people I've spoken to a lot of elementary age kids, so there's not many questions I haven't heard. So hurting my feelings <laughs> or saying things that will get me emotional. There's not many of them. Okay. But, um, yeah. Elementary school age kids don't have a lot of filters, do they? No, no, they don't. <laughs> but you know, some of those like, like fifth graders, I think they, they drilled me on some pretty in, some good questions. You know, they've asked better questions than some adults do. <laughs> but um, I'll try to keep up with the elementary school kids. <laughs> <laughs> Again, every time our squad went out, there's about 12 of us you know, we'd always come back with 12. We probably engaged the enemy more than any other squad in our company. And uh, we handled it and, and moved on. I was on point on the right side of our patrol. It was a, What day is this again, Matt? Sorry. A, a January 18th. January 18th, 2007. 2007. Okay. And my, my team leader was on the left. So, you know, we basically double column, double stack down the road. And because there were so many danger zones, but you know, we got the, I called home talk to my uncle because you know at that time you're like okay we're about two months out of this and we're heading home got to call this brief go on this patrol this basic IED patrol and we stepped off and and it's interesting because like this is the part where I don't have any memory of and you're on foot then yes on foot okay. actually we actually felt safer on foot than in vehicle because our mobile unit got hit so hard I don't remember any of the beginning of the patrol but it picks up the last seconds of walking down Park Place, which is a road that laid parallel to the Euphrates River. I was on the right side of the road and I seen, walking past this compound wall, I saw a white bag leaned up against a tree, probably about 30 yards off to my right in front of me. And a lot of times insurgents use indicators or to mark like where, where an ID is in place or a weapons cache, so they know where it is. So as I saw that white bag leaned up against a tree and I turned, let my team leader know and those behind me and the minute I turned back around, I was just come up to the end of that compound wall, and there was a ditch that laid perpendicular from the road I was on that went inside of a pipe underneath the road. As I looked down, I saw the command wires going right inside the pipe. And, I mean, in a matter of seconds, it exploded directly underneath me. So uh, is there, was there somebody controlling it, or did you trigger yeah, it? They, yeah, somebody was controlling it. It was okay. commanded. I mean, it was – Okay. It got me right on top of it, and um, – Ugh, they waited till you were right there. Yep. And, it, you know, it's a shrapnel into both my eyes. And um, it, my left leg was removed at the scene. And my right leg was severely damaged. And people always ask, like, what were you what were you thinking? What was going on with all this? And I mean, there's really no words to describe what I was but thinking. You remember you know? that. You remember when it happened. I do. Yeah. Okay. I remember just laying there and my squad leader running up and, like you could hear him yelling for QRF on the radio directly over me. And, you know, and I had the litter kit actually in my back in my pack. And so they had to get that out and put me on that. But, but every time, like one of the Marines told me when they were running up to me that, that I was trying to get up, like I was in shock where I was just trying, like I got knocked down. I was trying to get back up again. And um, so they had to hold me down and they, they put me on the litter kit and they pulled me into a compound wall to wait for QRF and, and, you know, my friends, you know, this is the first time that something this severe has happened to anyone in our squad. And, you know, they're just sitting there holding my hand because they honestly didn't think I would make it. 
Do you remember not being able to see then? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, it's like the vision just, it went dark all of a okay. sudden. And okay. I think just so much pain and shock that. You were uh, in pain. Because I, the, it's weird that the other men that I've spoken to, they weren't in pain. And I don't know yeah. if it's because they were in shock or what, but you definitely felt the pain. Yeah, and a little bit of both. But yeah, I was just kind of like, it was, it happened so fast and like, almost like a, a dream, more of a nightmare, I guess. As they put me in the Humvee, a familiar voice was part of QRF, was a platoon sergeant in the same company. And that was my senior drill instructor, the guy that we would thought never see again. Right. He said, you'll be fine, Bradford. Those are the last words I heard before I passed out. I woke up three weeks later in Bethesda, Maryland to um, finally understand what happened to me. Were both your legs gone then at that point? They were by that time, yes. Okay. When you wake up, did you realize where you were? Did you remember what had happened? When I woke up, like, I, you know, my, my mom and dad were there. A lot of our friends were there in the hospital room in Bethesda. And this is after being in a coma for three weeks, a heavily sedated coma. Yeah. And um, so they, they started telling me, like, because here I am, like, why am I here? Like, why am I not back in Iraq with my, my brothers? And, like, like, what happened? And at that time, I kept having this image of that white bag in my head. And I didn't know then why do I have this image in my head? Command wires, all this stuff. And, like, I was literally laying in the hospital bed. The phantom pains in my legs were so strong, so I felt like I had feet. And my dad kept whispering over to my shoulder with to the doctors and so at first i'm like i got captured they got me blindfolded the day that my dad told me i lost my legs i lost my vision i didn't care about the vision it was the legs that i wanted back really i cried and cried and screamed and you know hoping a tear would grow those legs back you know and it was just laying there in the bed and you know i'm starting thinking like what in the world am i doing what am i gonna do in life now like, so I, I wouldn't eat. I was so skinny and weak that like lifting my head up off the bed was so impossible. You know, like I mentioned earlier, the two ways I wanted to be deployed, I'm either going to come home with my brothers or not come home at all. Like there was no in the middle. I just uh, wanted to lay there and die. It's really interesting. I spoke to someone um, yesterday, Shiloh Harris, and he was severely burned and he was put in a coma, I think he said for 48 days. And I did not realize this, and I'm wondering if you had any of the same experience. He said that in his coma, he was aware of things going on. Like he could hear people talking to him and that it was a very dark place. And the coma was such a scary place to be that when he came out of it, he did not want to go to sleep again. Do you remember anything from your coma? I don't. Okay. Um, I remember I had some, some, very interesting, weird dreams, but I don't remember any of it. And I actually went to therapy with Shiloh Harris. It's a small world when you when you come from the, the wounded side, that's for sure. You know, I, I can understand a little bit about the family mentality that you all have because it's just such a big interwoven of all of you and the more that I meet, it's, it's amazing to me. And mm -hmm. you were also incredible and Shiloh was absolutely amazing. I also spoke with Greg Gatson. He was injured about the same time too. I'm amazed by all of you. Can I just say that? I truly am amazed by all of you, by your courage, by your ability to keep going 
here you are, you're, you're so skinny, you, you're not eating, you, you're very weak, and you probably don't even care about things. And Shiloh mentioned to me that he went through the same thing. He said he was mean to everybody. He just didn't care. Yeah. What was the turning point for you? People have asked me before, it's like, what, what was the, that certain moment, that certain day that like really turned your life around? And I'm like, I really can't think of one in particular, but I, I do remember being a Marine and felt like after stepping on that ID, I realized that, okay, being a Marine, it, that's gone. But those the corpsmen and the nurses and, you know, thankfully I had two Marines who I served with wounded before me, you know, were at Bethesda and they stopped by and they, they saw me as much as they can for those familiar voices, you know, for me. But one of the corpsmen actually, she made me some brownies and a glass of milk. She didn't take no for an answer. That was the first meal that I remember eating was those brownies and that glass of milk. And from there on, things started getting better. I started slowly being taken off medication. I started eating more and getting stronger. And and then like my mindset got better. And it's amazing, like when you get your attitude put in when you get your attitude in the right spot, things can happen. And it happened for me. I started realizing because I had a Marine that would come talk to me day in and day out. And I'm like, this is what I want to do. Like God kept me alive for a reason. There's not too many people that could step on an ID and actually walk away from it. But you know what? God kept me alive for a reason. And it's get out and share this story. He knows what my story is. Now it's my next job, my mission to follow the path to get me to the story on what my purpose in life is. Finding that purpose. That's what we need to find is our purpose. And that's our mission. But I realized that I need to get from that hospital bed to a wheelchair outside that hospital door because outside that door is where opportunity is for me. And I wanted to re-enlist. I wanted to stay in the Marines. I knew it'd be tough. And I did that. Like I started getting better. I started getting stronger. And before I knew it, I was checking out of Bethesda, moving on to the next hospital in Richmond, Virginia. And I believe, you know, with the Marines, the, the corpsmen, the nurses being so strong on me and and, and helping me realize that, yes, I'm still a Marine, kept pushing me in the right direction. And when I got to Richmond, Virginia, I feel like this is the kind of the turning point on when I really started seeing it life differently that, okay, I have no legs, I have no vision, but you know what, I could do this. This ain't nothing. And these three stories in particular, one of them was when I got to Richmond, Virginia, I, I was still in my wheelchair, but I, I started coming out of my room. But every time I come out of my room, I had a poncho line or a blanket that across my legs across my lap because I realized that, okay, it was that security blanket. Nobody can see they don't have amputations. Mm -hmm. You know what? It's getting me out of this room. You know, I realized then that I got to be comfortable in my own skin. Like my legs aren't growing back. I slowly started taking that blanket, that security blanket off me. But I started getting out. I started getting comfortable being around other people, understanding that this is me. This is who I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And the next one was the doctor who would come in my room every afternoon, every evening before he went home. And he would talk with me, but when he talked with me, he covered his eyes and he said, Matt, you can't see me. So I can't see you. But he took the time and effort to come in there every afternoon, every evening on a busy schedule to sit down and chat with me. And it, it, it made me start trusting him for him to cover his eyes, to see what I see. That meant the world to me and understand that there's so many people out there. It doesn't matter what their title position is when you're struggling, when you need help, there's always someone there that you could reach out to. And he gave that to me. And the last one I think is the most important one is I had a speech therapist come in the first day. I told her like, look, I'm from Kentucky, Virginia. This is how I talk. All right. <laughs> I, 
I had a trach in, so they, they wanted to work with me. I'm like, look, I don't want to sit here and talk about the red fox jumping over the brown log. <laughs> let's, let's focus on something else. I want to get better and move on. But the next day, she come in with my blind rehab outpatient specialist, and I was curious on why she was there. And he was like, well, she wants to continue working with you, so she's going to teach you Braille. I'm like, okay. But for the next couple of months, we worked on Braille every day, sometimes six days a week for a couple of hours. We laughed, joked, had a good time. And I realized right before I checked out of Richmond, Virginia, that just days before I saw her for the first time, she had a miscarriage. But you know what? Everything that she had in her own mind, the same with me having stuff in my mind, that was taken away because we were having such a good time. She was smiling. And years later, I got, I was on the air, at the airport in Chicago and I was getting off the bus and the lady says, whatever you do in life, you never know what somebody else is dealing with. So be respectful, kind, and compassionate. Mm-hmm. And it made me think back to my therapist in Richmond, Virginia, that she had so much going on and I could have been mean to her. I could have yelled at her because I, you know, I was in a bad place, but I didn't. We laughed and joked and for that hour or two a day, six days a week, it took her mind off her own problems. But I realized that we all deal with stuff. We all have our own problems, you know, and we all have different ways to deal with it. But the most important thing in life is to learn to just smile and laugh and enjoy life, you know, and, and, and going to San Antonio, being around other amputees, around guys who are severely burned. These guys just having such a good time joking around. And I realized then that, if I can't learn to laugh about anything, then, then I'm not going to survive. Back to Richmond, I would always go into this one room where there was a fish tank. And I would sit on the couch by myself and I would just listen to the water. Mm. And I realized then after all these stories, and you know, this has only been four months yeah. since my injury, I realized that, you know what, I could do this. This is the life I've been given from the good Lord above. My purpose in life is to be there for others, to let them know that no matter what they're dealing with, they can overcome it. Put your mind in the right spot. You got to learn that God will throw so many obstacles every day that when you wake up, it's a choice. Are you going to wake up as a victim, self-pity, poor me, poor me? Or are you going to wake up and be like, let's go. What's it going to be today? Motivated, inspired. If I need help, I'm going to go ask this person to get me through this. I'm going to put out my hand and they're going to help me along the way. And I think that's the most important thing that I've learned from, from Bethesda to Richmond, Virginia, on the way to San Antonio. Those are a lot of lessons. You realize that, okay, you know, maybe joining the Marines. Yeah. That, that put me in this spot. And now, you know, January 18, 2007 put me down a different road, you know, detour. And I want to make the best of this life that I've been given because I was given the opportunity to live another life. Where did you meet your wife? When I re-enlisted in 2010, I had the opportunity either staying in San Antonio or going to North Carolina to work at the Wounded Warrior Battalion. And the first weekend I moved to North Carolina, I ran into my, my wife and we become instant friends. She helped us get situated with the area and one thing led to the next. And, and here we are today, almost, I guess, almost married nine years, but you know, 11 years later. I don't understand what that means to be re-enlisted. How do you re-enlist with your injuries? What does that entail? When I was injured, the Marine Corps come out with a program to keep Purple Heart recipients in the military or in the Marine Corps to live out their career, their life, you know, retirement and stuff. And 
it was called the extent of a permanent limited duty. So I knew the, I knew if I get to the point of going, you know, learn how to walk, going, figuring out the whole blind stuff and doing everything I needed to do. So when I put my paperwork in to re-enlist and they better have good reason to tell me no. Okay. And, um, and it was for Purple Heart recipients that you could go in and they'll put you where you need to be. If you can still get out and do what infantry guys do, then they're going to put you there. I wanted to be around the wounded warriors. I wanted to show other wounded warriors that no matter what your injury is, you could still live life and overcome your daily challenges. So that was my ultimate focus. That was the goal that I went after, no matter, you know, from people telling me, no, get out, all this stuff. I didn't listen to those negative people. I knew what I needed to do. And in 2009, of August of 2009, I put in my paperwork. It was either retire, um, reevaluate re your findings, or re-enlist. And I wanted to re-enlist. And the process was long because, I mean, I'm a blind guy with no legs. You know, what can they do for the blind guy with no legs? And <laughs> I had amazing leadership that understood that, you know, on surface, Matt might look that he can't do much. But you know what? This guy has an attitude unlike no one other. You know, he's resilient. There's a lot in the Marine Corps and in the military that he could teach. And they saw that. And, you know, when my packet come on their desk, they signed it and you know, moved it on. So as uh, in April 7th, 2010, is when I raised my right hand, I re-enlisted back into the Marine Corps. I was the first blind double amputee in the history of the Marine Corps to do that. Wow. The funny thing is, two years later, I married my wife on that same date. So she can never get on to me for forgetting dates. So you are still in the Marines today then? No, I actually, um, you know, the one thing with the EPLD program, it's uh, you could go in, stay in for as long as 20 years, or when it's your time, when you feel like you're done, then you could uh, put in your medical board and you can get out. So in 2012 is when I officially retired. Okay. What are you doing now, Matt? So right now I've, uh, I travel the country uh, doing speaking engagements. I also work with Troops First Foundation. So we go around and speak at town halls, you know, about warrior call, military suicide, you know, telling your brothers and sisters to, to reach out, to make a call when you're struggling and basically check in on each other, making that call. When somebody calls you, pick up the phone call. You know, one of my friends, one of my really, really good friends who I went to therapy with um, a couple of years ago called me. I was selfish. I let, he left a voicemail. I didn't answer it. And then I find out a day after Thanksgiving, just maybe a week later, that he took his life. How awful. You never understand how important that phone call is until you pick it up. Even if they're not struggling, just hearing someone's voice. And if they are struggling, then find them the proper resources to get them help and to stay on the phone and make sure that you don't get off the phone until they find help. But with that, public speaking, um, I'm the leadership coach for my high school football team, which is where I was this past weekend with those kids, teaching these youngsters, teaching these young kids the, that leadership, the importance of leadership, how you know, it kept me alive, adapt and overcome, attitudes, everything, never quit mentality, and to understand how to be better leaders, not only on the field, but be better leaders in life. The leadership is important, you know, and the accountability and all these leadership values. Um, they kept me alive in, in 2007. And, you know, I just want to kind of spread that mission, spread my story to them as well, because they're ultimately they're the future. Right. Were your sacrifices worth it? They were, and, and uh, I would go back and do it all over again. Um, 
you know, I, I look back at these last uh, 14 years and at the end of the day, that IED in Iraq in 2007 ultimately led me to my wife and my kids. And if that's the end goal, then the life with no vision and no legs is the life that I'm going to live for the rest of my life. Somebody asked me, it's like, well, talk about your no legs, no vision, no problem. And I look at, you know, no legs. It's like, again, like my legs aren't growing to grow back. So, okay, just get, take what you've been given and make this, make the best of each situation. You know, I'm hopeful that I'm going to have vision one day because I haven't seen my wife or my kids, mm. but you know what, while I'm on this earth right now, I want to like live my life with vision and I want to go out and I want to share my story. I want to inspire others. And at the end of the day with three happy kids, a beautiful wife and putting my mind to things and going after them, like I don't have any problems. Like I'm living my best life right now. I graduated from the university of Kentucky. I've served in the Marine Corps. I live in this country, a country I love country that I'm willing to lose my legs and vision for over and over again so my kids can grow up free, have the same freedoms that I have today. You know, there's an email that I got a few years ago that at the end of the day, it makes me like love this life even more and, and my purpose and mission. So I did an event with Toby Keith where I presented him an award. Oh, how cool. And, and I put a, a status on an Instagram, Facebook, and on Monday, I get an email. And I don't know how this lady got my email, but she's a huge Toby Keith fan and she read my post and she Googled me and then she um, sent me an email says, Matt, you will, you and I will never meet. And I'm a huge fan of Toby Keith, but after reading your post, if it wasn't for me reading your post tonight, then I would commit suicide. And just reading that made me realize that, you know what, it doesn't matter if you're a veteran, if you're in the military, if you're a civilian, like, like saving lives. It's like you're, your story means something to someone and that's what keeps me going every day that was when i wake up every morning and i'm motivated and i'm ready to attack the day this mission this new mission in life like those all those stories and people in my mind that's what pushes me through the day and i sit here and i think about life i think about living life in america and it takes me back to when i was in rehab learning how to walk my therapist told me one day, he's like, Matt, you don't see this, but every day when you come into therapy, you walk over here, you roll in here, you go to the mats, you put your legs on, you stand up and you walk out. People watch you. They watch you come to work every day. And he's like, you don't see that, but you're such an inspiration and motivation for these guys who probably don't understand what's next for them. You know, but if a blind guy with no legs can do it, then, then how come they can't do it? And, you know, I'm trying to learn how to walk on these two prosthetic legs. One day I was struggling. I was bouncing off left wall to right wall, tripping over my own feet, not wanting to fall. And he stopped me and said, Matt, whatever you do, I'll never let you fall. Just put one foot forward and just walk. And that's where that come up, just walk. Because it gave me the confidence that knowing that, that somebody's always going to be there to help you out when you fall down. I've learned, I heard somewhere that failure is not falling down, failure is staying down. Right. When you fall down, you got to get back up and you got to keep pushing forward because sometimes the easiest way accomplish whatever goal in life is just to put one foot forward and move in that direction. Because I, I realized later on too, that with each step I take is a step in the unknown. I don't know where I'm going. I could run into a wall until I find that door that's going to lead to an opportunity. 
and we don't know tomorrow or next week. You know, but we got to live in that moment because we're not guaranteed tomorrow or next week. I almost lost my life on one wrong step. So each step I take now is a step in the right direction and it's moving forward. Well, you know, I, every time I speak with one of you warriors, I have a natural high for the rest of the day. And I'm sure it will be that way after I get through with this conversation with you, because my goal with this podcast is to reach people, let them know how blessed we are to live in this country. And a huge part of that is due to the sacrifice of men and women like yourself. And if it impacts only one person, and it might be me, it's worth it because you all are incredible and give me such motivation to keep moving forward. Because like you said, if a guy with no legs <laughs> and no vision can do it, then so can I. My last question for you, Matt, is what does America mean to you? It means the world. And, and I think like what you just mentioned, a lot of people today don't understand that, you know, why we're free. I could look at the American flag and see the red on the flag to understand why we're free, because that was the blood I shed, the blood my brothers and sisters shed. And for 245 years, we had to fight for freedom. We had to fight against tyranny and communism and, you know, and now today terrorism. It takes a lot for us to be free. And a lot of people in this life, they take advantage of it. You know, when I, when I speak to the military, I always tell them that my time's come and gone. And the most important part is to leave it better than you found it. And I feel like I did and my generation did. But I also tell them that, you know what, thank you for your service means a lot to me because you're serving this country right now and keeping me and my family free. I have the right to tuck my daughter in every night and go sleep next to my beautiful wife knowing that I'm going to wake up in the morning living in a free country. And it's your service all over this world, still fighting today. The reason why I could do that. You know, I know, I know one of the story that me and my daughter, she, I read with her every night. It's tough, you know, being the blind guy, you know, your daughter reading, I don't even know if she's reading the right <laughs> words in the book, but she grabbed the new book out and she started reading the, 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 the text. And it was the lyrics to Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American. Oh, wow. And it, like you're talking about it just puts tears in my eyes. And, and she is such a proud patriot. Like she loves her dad. We'll do things. And if she sees somebody in uniform, she'll run up, give them a hug, shake their hand, thank them for their service. I think the most important thing is like, you know what, you, you talk about the millennial generation or whatever. And I'm one of those ones that uh, it's, a, it's a different world today. Yes. But, you know, I see some of these kids that are serving the military and being around those the kids in, at the Dinwiddie football team that they, their head is pointing in the right direction, learning everything they can about leadership. And that's the reason why I'm all about, you know, jumping on with them doing their leadership stuff it's because, you know what, I'm trying to teach them to be better leaders in life as well. A leadership doesn't mean you got a certain title. It's just how you treat others, how you inspire and motivate others. That's what leadership is. And you know what, I'm going to go out, I'm going to continue sharing my story because I feel like to make this country continue and become better than it was yesterday or last week, it's like we need to teach the youth. We need to share our stories with the youth. 
you know, and as a, as a veteran, as a, someone who served in the military, we have stories of resiliency and overcoming adversity. We need to get out and we need to share that with others because although it's not their story, we all deal with situations. You know, a lot of us tend to lay down and just quit and give up and play the victim card. But a lot of us, you know, they like, you know what, this is my, this is the battle. So I'm going to put one foot forward and we're going to move on. You know, and like you said, it's like, it doesn't matter if it's one person, two people, you're, you're pushing them in the right direction. And now they can go out and they can talk to somebody and, you know, okay, now you got four people. We just need to continue growing that as well. I look at this country and I love America. I love it more than most people, you know, and, and I, I'd be willing to give my life for this country again, you know, lift my legs and my vision. And it's just uh, the thought of understanding every time I put my, every time I wake up in the morning, I wake up in a free country. I wake up in a free country because of those 23 Marines I served with lost their lives defending thousands that have you know, given the ultimate sacrifice. Matt Bradford, you are a legend. I am honored you chose to spend an hour with me. No legs, no vision, no problem. You can add no excuses. No excuses for the rest of us because Matt sets the bar so high. You can find Matt on Facebook at No Legs, No Vision, No Problem. His website, Matthew-Bradford.com, where you can purchase a groovy-looking t-shirt for only $10, at TroopsFirstFoundation.org, or on Twitter at B-I-O-N-I-K-M-A-T-T-5. Matt, you have left an indelible impression on me, and I am honored and proud to call you friend. My guest next week is Rick Savage, former pro wrestler, reality TV show star, and Army veteran. Rick's episode is everything that you think it would be coming from a former pro wrestler. He is full of energy and opinions and wants to share them all. This episode is rockin' and rollin'. Until next Friday, see you then.